0: Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. The British anthropologist Edward Evans Pritchard spent many years investigating the culture of an African people from the Upper Nile region called the Nuer. On one occasion, after interviewing some of them about their religious beliefs, he invited them to ask him any questions they might have about his. One man pointed shyly at the anthropologist's wrist and said that he was curious about the divinity he wore there, and seemed to consult each time he had to make a decision. Evans Pritchard, in his book on newer religion, reports that he was surprised by the question, and surprised also by the difficulty he had in explaining that his wristwatch was not a deity. The turnabout that takes place in this story is now almost a cliché, but it still reflects a fundamental reversal within Western civilization during the 20th century. Since the beginning of the Age of Discovery, European civilization had acted as if everything in the world except itself stood in need of explanation. The anthropologist Bronislav Malinowski, on the eve of his second visit to the Trobriand Islands in the South Pacific, wrote candidly in his diary about his feeling of ownership. It is I, he went on, who will describe them or create them. Malinovsky's grandiosity is shocking, but it only serves to highlight the collective presumption of Western civilization. Malinovsky possessed the power of science, the power to penetrate to the literal or fundamental level of reality. And so whatever the Trobriand Islanders may have thought of themselves, It remained for Malinovsky to say what was actually the case. Today, all this has changed. Anthropology has turned its attention back on itself and is as likely to find its subjects in Toronto as in the Trobriand Islands. Historians and sociologists have recast science as a cultural rather than a purely rational enterprise. And the world that science has produced... The world of ozone holes and test tube babies is now as full of mysterious and invisible beings as any primitive society. These changes raise the question of how science as a way of thinking is to be understood today, and that question is at the center of tonight's Ideas program, the third of a four-part series by David Cayley on the subject of modes of thought. You'll hear from an historian of classical Greek and Chinese science who thinks that science reflects a state of society as much as a state of mind, from a philosopher who wants to reclaim the rational side of science, and from a psychologist who has tried to find out how well her fellow citizens actually reason. They were recorded at a symposium organized by psychologist David Olson and held at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, in September of 1993. David Cayley.
1: In Moliere's play Le Malade Imaginaire, there's a scene which portrays a doctoral examination at a medieval university. The examiners ask the candidate why opium puts people to sleep. Because learned doctors, the candidate replies triumphantly, it contains a dormative principle it was in a similar vein of empty explanation that science was once attributed to a scientific mentality or primitive thought to a primitive mentality. One of the ancestors of this approach was the French sociologist Lucien levy bruhl In his notebooks, for example, he considers a case reported from French Guinea in which it was claimed that a child had been kidnapped and eaten by witches, even though the body had been exhumed and shown to be intact. It must be, levi reasoned, that the incompatibility of these facts is not flagrant for them as it is for us. The modern mind, he goes on to say, works literally, basing itself on sense experience and using words in a positive, unambiguous way. The primitive mind participates uncritically in the world, unable to distinguish between literal facts and imagined meanings, unaware of contradictions. Lévi-Brulle modified his ideas towards the end of his life, but his notion of primitive mentality remained influential until quite recently. The idea of the primitive as a total psychological state had many attractions for modern people. It offered a proud image of what they had overcome, along with a wistful sense of all that they had lost. The trouble was, says Geoffrey Lloyd, the idea actually had no content. Geoffrey Lloyd is the master of Darwin College, Cambridge, and the author of a number of books on ancient Greek science. More recently, he has also undertaken comparative studies of ancient Chinese science. As a historian, Geoffrey Lloyd has had to account for the phenomenon of irrational belief, as well as the appearance in Greece of what we claim to be the ancestor of modern science. This has brought him to consider the hypothesis that thought styles can be explained as the consequences of an underlying mentality. In 1990, he published a book on the question called Demystifying Mentalities.
2: The problem about uh, the mentalities hypothesis is that it, it really doesn't explain anything because it postulates a mentality that corresponds to the statements or the beliefs or the patterns of behavior and just leaves it at that. I mean if there were such a thing as a mentality it would very, it'd be very difficult to explain that. Why should there be a mentality? Why would you acquire a mentality? How would you acquire a mentality? And how could you possibly change your ideas without changing your mentality? And what would it be to change your mentality? I mean uh, it, it becomes pretty spooky. It, it doesn't do any explanatory work, and even as a description, I'm dissatisfied with it because um, it psychologizes the phenomena. Now, of course, why should, one, why should one object to the psychologizing of phenomena? Well, if you attribute this to a characteristic of the mind, it's very difficult to investigate further. For a historian, of course, given that we can't interview the people that we're interested in, it's just about, I mean, it just blocks all further inquiry. So it's a question of finding another way of dealing with the phenomena, and the way that I prefer is to talk in terms of the context of communicative exchange, because... I see as an important factor in, for example, in Greek science, and I would say that it's also important in the Renaissance, and for many of the contexts that the anthropologists are dealing with, the context of the exchange makes a very considerable difference. You will answer a question differently depending upon how you interpret the situation you're in. If you're in a mythical, ritual, religious situation, you will say things and do things that you wouldn't... You wouldn't do outside that. When you're on a hunting party, when you're doing the ritual performance before you decide where to, where to hunt, you will do certain things. But when you're actually hunting, maybe your behaviour, maybe your statements will be different. So that the context of exchange will make a big difference to the, to the content of, um, of the communication. So what I was looking for as an alternative to the mentalities talk and uh, in, 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 instead of postulating a, an ancient Greek mentality, I was looking for those uh, contexts of uh, exchange that made a difference to the way in which Greek thought developed.
1: Relating Greek science to the social and political background from which it emerged meant challenging certain of the stereotypes of classical antiquity. Ancient Greece had been treated as the dream time of the modern West the place where people first emerged into the clear light of reason. And this image had domesticated it and made ancient Greece seem more familiar than perhaps it really was. Lloyd's studies led him to see his subject as more foreign and more diverse and to relate the origins of science more to the political culture than to any
2: unique or original mentality. When people talk about the uniqueness of Greek science, uh, what they have tended to want to do in the past is to find find some kind of foundation to modern science as they construe it. That was the way in which well, that was the way in which I was originally taught about Greek philosophy. The Greeks were marvellous, almost like us, weren't they? So they must be marvellous, uh, because they invented all these these uh, marvellous uh, tools of thought, including philosophy and science. And what a breath of fresh air the Greeks were. Now that, of course, just simply doesn't do justice to the complexity of the phenomena. Dodds' book, The Greeks and the Irrational, was a very important turning point in the study of the ancient world because it put the focus on all sorts of otherwise rather understudied aspects of Greek life and culture. And it's not just that they exist in the domain of, let's say, tragedy or in religion, They also exist bang in the heart of what we would uh, sometimes want to refer to as their science. I mean, when you look at Greek medicine, you find it's an extremely complex, heterogeneous phenomena where there's competition between temple medicine, people referring to the gods causing diseases and curing them, on the one hand, rationalist medicine, folk medicine. Now, they're all in competition with one another, and it's the context of that competition that are important. Competition
1: in ancient Greece meant a public contest of ideas. And it was through such contests that Geoffrey Lloyd thinks that Greek science acquired its distinctive characteristics. Greek science, for example, was speculative rather than practical. The proof of theories was their theoretical consistency, not their agreement with observations the emphasis was always on finding the fundamental principles that could settle a question. Exactly the
2: characteristics, Lloyd thinks, of Greek political culture. When you're trying to propose a physical theory uh, as a Greek master of truth, you're conscious that you will be challenged. You don't really think that you're going to get away with it. So you expect to, to have to justify. Now, that relates to precisely the same characteristics that you can find In Greek politics, why should it be democracy that's the best constitution? Why not oligarchy? Why not monarchy? So then you have to give an account, Logon did deny, as they said. In legal battles, you had to justify your case. Another very important point about Greek society is that Greek citizens, that's to say male adults uh, who had citizen status in the city-states, had far greater experience of politics than than you or I have, because it's participatory rather than representative democracy. They're in there, in the Assembly, taking votes on the Constitution, whether to go to war, and and if they decided to go to war, they had to fight it. It wasn't just a question of sending off our dear lads to the Gulf War, or or whatever it might be, because the citizens themselves were the army. So their experience of um, the debates uh, in the Assemblies and the law courts was very direct, and when given that they constituted the audience of the public lectures of these masters of truth, very, very small-scale societies, the population of Athens, was, was tiny compared with, with, with modern cities. So that's why I think that the social and political background of, of Greek life is a, a fundamental influence on the nature of the science and the politics that they, uh, the science and the philosophy that they produce. Geoffrey
1: Lloyd's sense of the importance of social context in shaping styles of thought has been reinforced by his comparative studies of ancient Chinese science. Ancient Greek science was concerned with foundations and with specifying the elements of which nature is composed. Ancient Chinese science, by way of contrast, produced very notable discoveries and inventions. Gunpowder, printing with movable types, navigational use of the compass, but it shared none of the Greek concern with the ultimate constituents of nature.
2: The Chinese have attributed to them a, a, an element theory, and it just isn't an element theory. The, the, tr- the expression in, in China is wuxing, which means the five phases, and those are processes. They're not elements. There's a fundamental difference between the Greek way of talking about the fundamental constituents of material objects they are uh, stable. They have to have certain characteristics. They may interact with one another, but earth as earth. You can define earth as having certain properties and you know what you're talking about, and that is a stable, that's a substance. Now, the Chinese actually don't have, earth isn't one of the five phases, but take wood, mu. That's not the, the object we, it's not just the object that we make furniture out of. Wu relates to the, the growing Qualities of things, and it's each of the five items is in process of transformation according to different cycles. So, this is a process oriented notion. There's nothing foundational about it, it isn't as if this provides stable structures from which everything else can be derived. Greek element theory. Is then deployed. If you have your elements, if you've got your elements clear, then you make them, you, you have a theory of compounds. You have a theory of change, and you have something that uh, looks very much like um, chemistry, although although it isn't chemistry. And that's a foundational matter. The elements are the foundations of physics. And it, when challenged, as because there was not just one element theory in Greece, there were hundreds of them. Uh, when they were challenged. Uh, the people who'd proposed them try to justify them, try to give an account, a justificatory account, of why it must be the case that it's earth, air, fire, and water, or why it must be the case that it's atoms and the void. With argument, you see. Going back to some foundational principle that won't necessarily be accepted, but that you, you stake out as the proper principle from which the subject can be derived.
1: The requirement that one stake out principles explains to Geoffrey Lloyd... Why many of the distinctions on which Greek science was founded have a polemical dimension. Herodotus opposes myth to history in order to show that his stories are true while earlier accounts are fanciful. The word magic was applied to opponents with the same rhetorical intention as was the term myth, often by Hippocratic physicians whose methods were more dangerous than those of the traditional healers they were trying to discredit. Even Aristotle's famous distinction between the literal and the metaphorical, Lloyd says, was not, these are Lloyd's words, an innocent neutral piece of logical analysis, but a weapon forged to defend a territory, repel borders, put down rivals. Again, he finds the distinction absent in China.
2: The classical Chinese don't have any dichotomy that corresponds to the literal and the metaphorical. If you ask the uh, Chinese what uh, um, the word for metaphor is, they will say, that that's you, yen, and they, they will cite a text, uh, the 33rd chapter of Zhuangzi, that uh, refers to, literally, its lodge words. But in that text, it's not contrasted with anything like uh, the literal. The metaphorical isn't contrasted with something that is uh, regular. I mean, metaphorical is deviant language in Aristotle. The metaphorical is not the strict use of language. The strict use of language is the literal. But in the Chinese trichotomy, not dichotomy, but trichotomy, there isn't one privileged mode of discourse. So although it's perfectly fair to say that in certain contexts yuyen corresponds to what we would describe as metaphor, it isn't as if uh, there was any classical Chinese philosopher who decided that it was important to divide terms into two groups, the literal, regular, kind of use of terms, and the metaphorical, deviant, poetic, and generally uh, non-scientific use of terms.
1: Aristotle's distinction makes sense to Geoffrey Lloyd only when it is located within the social relations of Greek intellectual life. He finds the same correspondence between the nature of science and the nature of society in ancient China. Chinese science differed from Greek science, he says as Chinese society differed from Greek society.
2: There are important differences in the context within which Chinese um, philosophers, doctors, astronomers operated, and the way in which their Greek counterparts did. I mean, astronomers were in the Astronomical Bureau, which was an imperial institution, and that makes a fundamental difference. It's a tremendous advantage to them because their ideas were taken seriously. Greek astronomers, you could invent a new calendar. Astronomers did, but chances are in Greece it would be ignored. The Greeks uh, didn't take seriously the work of the astronomers in the way that uh, the Chinese did. When I say the Chinese did, the Chinese emperor did. When the emperor decided that uh, the, the the calendar should be a new calendar should be adopted, it was adopted. So that the institutions within which the scientists work do make a, a very great difference to their program. I mean, the, the Chinese are uh, very concerned uh, to elaborate more and more accurate calendars, eclipse cycles, analyses of uh, irregularities, portents, and so on, so that their their agenda isn't determined by the emperor, for sure, but it, it, it is. they must have been conscious of um, imperial needs. Now, there's no such influence on Greek uh, astronomers. Greek astronomers are concerned with what? With demonstrating that the heavens must be as they say they are. There's another way in which the institutions affect science, and that is the institutions within which the scientists themselves work. One of the most important factors in the so-called scientific revolution is the way in which um, scientists were interacting with one another. And the, when, when the scientific community grows to a reasonable size, I don't know what I mean by that, but there is there's a definite difference in the order of magnitude in the number of people you could talk to. Uh, the number of people you could co- talk to or correspond with in your own generation, in Greece, certainly, in, in, in ancient Greece, is always uh, tiny. That means that um, the problem is not so much why didn't science take off, why wasn't there immediately a a 17th century-style scientific revolution in the 2nd century AD. Uh, That's not the question. The the question was how it was preserved at all, rather, because of the the lack of an educational basis for transmitting science. The, The Chinese again have the advantage over the Greeks because... What it was to join a a Chinese jia, family, lineage, school, was to be responsible for the transmission of a a body of knowledge. The Greeks didn't have well-organized groups for the transmission of knowledge. It was all dependent upon individual ambitions to join in a debate that they knew had existed.
1: Geoffrey Lloyd's studies of ancient Greece and China emphasize how deeply science is embedded in a particular society with its particular weave of customs and institutions. This view doesn't deny that science is partly a rational activity, but it insists that it has many other dimensions as well, dimensions that tend to be overlooked when science is simply thought of as the application of a scientific mentality. Lloyd's efforts to give a more complex and more nuanced account of ancient science belong to a broad trend in the history, philosophy, and sociology of science over the last 30 years or so. Historians of modern science have looked for the contexts of scientific discovery in the same spirit as Lloyd has investigated the ancient world. They have argued, for example, that the foundations of knowledge are also the foundations of social order. They have said that science constructs nature rather than simply uncovering it. And they have suggested that scientific theories only make sense inside an intricate scaffolding of assumptions and techniques. But what has tended to be forgotten in this account, says Paul Thagard, is what was once at the center of any account of science, rationality. Paul Thagard is the author of Conceptual Revolutions, a study published in 1992 of how ideas change in science, and a professor at the University of Waterloo with cross-appointments in philosophy, psychology, and computer science. Some of the first cracks in the idea that science is a purely rational activity, he says, appeared in 1962. That was the year in which Thomas Kuhn published The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, the book that put the previously obscure word paradigm into wide circulation.
3: Thomas Kuhn gave it a very different meaning from what it had before. A paradigm is simply an example of, yeah. of something, a very good example of a particular case. What Kuhn did was to take it from that meaning based on an example and give it about uh, 20 additional meanings. And Kuhn, in fact, said uh, that one of the reasons it was so influential is that, in fact, it had all those different meanings, and so people could take it and put it to use to what they want. But one of the kinds of meanings that he attached to it was to take it beyond the example and use it really to mean something as big as an entire worldview. So your whole conceptual system can be your paradigm as well as the particular examples that go to make that up.
1: How did he alter the understanding that had
3: prevailed of how science changes? Well, Kuhn wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in 1962. The prevailing view of how science worked was extraordinarily different from where it is today. The dominant school in philosophy was the logical positivists. And in their view, the structure of science was essentially as a bunch of propositions, sentences arranged in logical order, And the way in which you evaluated them was by doing logical deductions and making predictions and seeing whether those predictions are carried out by the observations that you make through your experiments and observations. So they had a very narrow view of the way science worked. First of all, a scientific theory is just a simple set of logical sentences. And secondly, testing is a relatively straightforward matter of comparing the sentences against what you observe. There were the consequences of the sentences against which you observe. When Kuhn came along, he said, wait, this is much more complicated than that. Because in fact, one of the reasons he brought in the notion of a paradigm was to suggest that the structure of a scientific theory was far more complicated. It wasn't something that you could put in a couple of sentences like axioms in a geometrical uh, theory or something like that. Instead, it had to be this sort of complicated conceptual system that was organized around standard examples of problem-solving success that was organized around values that people have. It became much more fuzzy, uh, but I think much more accurately descriptive of what goes on in scientists' minds. A paradigm,
1: as Thomas Kuhn used the term, was the master plan within which a research program, what he called normal science, could be formulated and executed. The paradigm would, in effect, set the rules determining how problems were defined and establishing a class of facts pertinent to their solution. Change occurred through the accumulation of what Kuhn called anomalies, observations the paradigm could not explain. Enough of these, over a long enough period, would stimulate the creation of a new paradigm. The new paradigm, Kuhn said, would be incommensurable with the old, meaning that they could not be compared because each was erected on different and often incompatible assumptions.
3: If you go back to the positivist view, it should be relatively simple to decide between theories. You simply look and see which has the observations that fit with them the best. What Kuhn suggested is that it's much more complicated than that because the mental structures or the the paradigms, as he called them, are so different that you can't do an easy translation between them. And so evaluation of one paradigm versus another isn't at all straightforward. In some of his views, he suggests that incommensurability of paradigms makes the evaluation impossible, which is what led to charges of irrationalism being being thrown against Kuhn's ideas. Between
1: paradigms, in Kuhn's theory, there was a rupture and then a reconfiguration. Paul Thagard didn't believe that the process of change in science was as discontinuous as this seemed to imply. So he developed a model of conceptual change, which showed how rational comparison between paradigms, though not a simple matter, was possible.
3: After Kuhn's book came out, suddenly everything was a revolution. When I did my study of scientific revolutions in my book, Conceptual Revolutions, I decided to focus much more narrowly on six or seven cases that do recognizably involve major shifts in views. There were things like the triumph of the Copernican system of astronomy over Ptolemy. Uh, the case of Darwin's views came in about evolution, supplanting creationist views of how species had come to be. So these were literally the main cases. So I don't think there are a lot of scientific revolutions, uh, but there have been some extremely important ones. And what they all have in common is that one well established theory that was established because it had enormous explanatory power was replaced by another that had even greater explanatory power. And in all these cases, the switch from one to the other was very difficult because appreciation of the explanatory power of the new theory required people to adopt a new conceptual scheme. This is where my views are similar to Kuhn's, in talking about there being different paradigms. What I tried to do in each case, though, was to spell out what the conceptual scheme amounted to, to say, what the concepts were, for example, of a creationist view before Darwin's theory of evolution came along, and to see what kinds of shifts had to take place for the old theory to be replaced by the other. So it wasn't just a matter of doing some more experiments to show that the new theory was better. It wasn't just a matter of taking a bunch of propositions and showing that one had more explanatory power than the other. It was also a matter of a whole new generation of people having to acquire a new conceptual scheme, a whole organized set of concepts before they could even appreciate what the explanatory power is of the, of the new theory. So this is why rationality isn't simple, because it is a matter of building up entirely new conceptual structures. But if you can do that, as in fact people in the history of science have usually managed to do over a period of years, then it becomes possible for people in general to see that the new conceptual scheme has real advantages over the previous one.
1: An example which illustrates all aspects of Paul Thagard's account of conceptual change is the revolution associated with the work of Charles Darwin. Darwin's theory accounted for observations that the doctrine of creation could not explain, but it did so by fundamentally altering the way in which nature was classified.
3: Go back to 1840. In eighteen forty, if you wanted to know if you asked people why are there different species, why are there dogs and cats and elephants and so on, the answer would be quite simple. God created them. They were part of God's design. Darwin, around that time, around eighteen forties started to think that, no, it wasn't as simple as that. It looked to him when he saw the different species of tortoises in the Galapagos Islands, and he saw the different finches there, that it seemed as if there had been an evolution. So he developed a new explanatory framework that said that you've got variation among animals. Because of variation, you've got different kinds of properties turning up in different animals. You've got a struggle for existence that occurs because they're competing for various kinds of resources. And out of that struggle for existence comes the natural selection, which leads over time, over large periods of time, for new species to evolve.
1: What is changed, and how has it changed between the two views?
3: Several things have changed. Some of it is just a matter of, of sentences, of beliefs. The beliefs have changed, so now obviously you believe the hypothesis that species evolved rather than that they were created by God. But what's also changed is conceptual structure. Because one of the major shifts that was involved in becoming a Darwinian was reclassifying human beings. Because in the creationist point of view, humans are special. They were created specially by God. And you could talk about people and animals. The animals were really a whole different branch of the tree from a creationist perspective. But once you adopt the theory of evolution, then you see people human beings as just being another branch off the same tree of animals, down somewhere down below primates or monkeys. And for various reasons, some of them religious, some of them ethical, this was very disturbing to people. Alfred Wallace, who was Darwin's co-inventor of the theory of evolution, never could, have, could apply it to humans. He thought that the theory of evolution applied to animals in general, but he drew the line at humans. But Darwin, starting with his book, The Descent of Man, carried the day, at least in many scientific circles.
1: Reclassification, in Paul Thagard's view, is characteristic of all conceptual revolutions. The Copernican revolution required the reclassification of the Earth as a planet. Quantum theory obliterated a once firm distinction between waves and particles. In Darwin's case, species were reclassified according to their descent rather than their appearance.
3: The conceptual system for the creationist is based largely on similarity. If you want to classify animals, uh, you do it on the basis of which animals look like other animals. It's a matter of similarity. But Darwin brought in a whole new criterion for classifying animals, for seeing what your conceptual tree of animals is going to be. And that was descent. So two animals are similar for Darwin, not just on the basis of whether they look alike, whether their organs are similar, but on the basis of whether they evolved from a common ancestor. So he changed the whole way in which you can classify animals, as well as, uh, as well as changing beliefs about how they came about. So that's how I see the Darwinian revolution is vol- evolving not only belief change, where you reject some old beliefs and accept new ones, but where you see a conceptual restructuring taking place, where the kind relations that tie together our concepts have to be replaced.
1: This replacement,
3: Paul Thagard believes,
1: often takes place surprisingly quickly. In 1970, in the second edition of The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Thomas Kuhn suggested that a new paradigm finally triumphs only when its opponents die. Paul Thagard doesn't argue that conceptual change is easy or instantaneous, but he can point to numerous cases in which scientists have adopted ideas which they at first doubted
3: opposed. In most of the scientific revolutions I've looked at over a period of five or ten or twenty years you find most of the scientific community making the shift. So it takes a while to build up the conceptual system but once you do that you can see that the new theory does in fact have greater explanatory coherence. What that amounts to is first of all that it explains more. There are puzzling things about uh, species such as why in certain geographical locations you've got a bunch that are similar to each other, that creationism had nothing to say about it. It could just say, well, that's what God designed. But once you had the theory of evolution and once you had natural selection, there were all sorts of things about the distribution of species and the nature of species that you could start to explain. So this is basically a view of,
1: of progress, of moving to ever greater explanatory coherence.
3: It's a view of progress, but it's complicated because it's not simply just piling one more fact upon another. In the positivist tradition, you could have an idea of of cumulative scientific progress as just that's what we believed before, and now we believe that plus even more, and so you just pile truth upon truth. That's the view that Kuhn overturned, but he overturned it in a way that made the notion of progress entirely suspect because it seemed that once one incommensurable paradigm moved in over another, it could be like changing fashions of hemlines and seemed rather arbitrary. My view, it's complicated because of the need to develop these new conceptual structures. But once you've done that, it's possible to see that the overall explanatory coherence of the new theory is in fact objectively greater than the previous one.
1: To compare the explanatory coherence of theories, Paul Theigart uses a computer model First, he attempts to specify the concepts entailed in a theory, and then he uses a computer program to systematically compare each set of concepts. In each of the seven conceptual revolutions he has studied, his model has shown that the new ideas explain more and hang together better than the old ones. The most recent case he examines in his book is the geological theory of plate tectonics, which won wide acceptance in the 1960s. But lately, he's been testing his ideas against a conceptual revolution, which is still in progress. In
3: 1983, a couple of Australian doctors came up with the idea that ulcers aren't caused by stress or excess acidity or the other things that most people think are the cause of it, but by a bacterial infection. One of them was a pathologist who discovered a new kind of bacteria in the stomach, and the other, a gastroenterologist named Barry Marshall, uh, did some experiments to find out what these bacteria were doing, and he discovered an enormous correlation between the presence of these bacteria and people having ulcers. And it's very interesting from the point of view of conceptual change because when Marshall first proposed this idea, people laughed at him. He submitted a paper to the Australian Gastroenterological Society, and this is after when he had his first experimental results, and got back a letter saying, We regret to inform you that because of the high quality of submissions, we were only able to take 58 out of the 67 papers submitted to this conference. So he was one of nine that were rejected, nine papers out of 67. So people just didn't take him seriously at all. But what happened is that other people, particularly bacteriologists, started investigating the role of the bacteria, and in the space of 10 years, his views have gone from being soundly rejected by gastroenterologists to being quite widely accepted. So that last year, for example, the National Institutes of Health had a panel that recommended that antibiotic treatments is now an appropriate form of treatment for ulcers. So what I'm doing now is tracing out the change that's taken place over that time, partly conceptual change, partly explanatory coherence, to see, first of all, why there was so much rejection of Marshall's views when he first proposed it, but also how, despite the fact that many people were opposed to this, they could come to change their minds. The field really did change. So it's, it's not at all like a, a Cuny incommensurability, It's not at all like a simple empiricist matter. If it were simple empiricist matter, then the people should have been able to see earlier on that Marshall was on to something. What was required, in fact, that the gastroenterologists had to build up a new conceptual system before they could appreciate the kinds of studies that Marshall and other people were starting to do that confirmed the new theory. So I think this is going to be another nice illustration of the analysis of conceptual change that I early applied to the scientific revolutions in other fields. Paul Thagard's
1: approach to conceptual change is itself an example of conceptual change within his field of the philosophy of science. New theoretical concepts generally arise, he writes in conceptual revolutions, by mechanisms of conceptual combination. That's precisely what he's done within the philosophy of science. Combine the elements that he thinks are true within the two views that have polarized the field. He calls the resulting hybrid explanationism.
3: I borrowed the term explanationism from Bill Lycan to describe a middle course between empiricism and rationalism. Empiricism is the view of the logical positivists that you can decide between theories on some sort of simple experimental basis. People reacted against that, Kuhn reacted against that by moving to a view that's much closer to rationalism, where it seems that experiment and observation are completely irrelevant, and it's all just a matter of reason operating with its own structures independently of the world or independently of experiment and observation. The explanationist view that I'm trying to defend is intended to be more cognitively sophisticated, the empiricist view, but nevertheless maintain the idea that when scientists change their minds, experiment and observations can matter to the extent that they affect explanatory coherence. So the explanationist view is that it is rational to adopt a new theory when it has greater explanatory coherence than the previous ones. It's not simply a matter of any kind of crucial experiment showing you the way. It's rather a matter of determining the coherence of the new views with all the evidence and all the other ideas that are around at the same time. So it has the kind of rich cognitive structure that rational explanation, rationalist explanations have tended to have, but it also maintains the tie with experiment and observation that the empiricists emphasized.
1: And how do you
3: think your views
1: stand
3: uh, in the great world at the moment? (laughs) That's a difficult question. Philosophy of science right now is extremely fragmented. There are lots of different views. You can't point to any kind of orthodoxy in the field right now. What people have tended to do, in fact, in philosophy of science, is to withdraw from global judgments about how science works to much more detailed studies about particular scientific fields like biology or high-energy physics or things like that. There simply isn't any kind of collective agreement about what's the right way to think about scientific thinking.
1: Conceptual change in science, according to Paul Thagard, is ultimately governed by rational criteria. But how does rationality stand in the everyday world? This is what cognitive psychologist Deanna Kuhn and her colleagues at Columbia University set out to discover. Their results appeared in a book called The Skills of Argument, published in 1991. The study it relates looked at whether a process of rational argument underlies people's beliefs. Typically, cognitive psychologists have presented their subjects with what are called well-formed problems, logical exercises with unique solutions. In this case, Deanna Kuhn says, subjects were asked controversial questions without correct answers. Why do children fail in school? Why do criminals re-offend? And what causes unemployment?
4: The aim was to sample a cross-section of ordinary, normal, average people, starting with adolescents, we had subjects in the 20s and 40s and 60s of equally represented by sex and also uh, we looked at two different educational levels which basically boiled down into non-college and college, those who had had some college and those who hadn't. Though let me explain that at the adolescent level that was a prospective difference. They were from populations that were largely college-bound or, or not.
1: And How many were there?
4: Well, 160 in all, it boils down to about 40 in each age group. But I also, let me mention, a co- the most interesting group in many ways were the, we, we had a smaller group of experts that we, so, so defined, that we wanted to compare then to the, the ordinary unselected subjects. And we had three kinds of experts one were school teachers who we conceived of as having domain expertise in the school failure question parole officers who we conceived of as having expertise in the return to crime question and then our third topic was unemployment and our third expertise group were philosophers but no we didn't <laughs> we didn't choose them for that reason as experts in unemployment but rather as experts in reasoning itself was our idea
1: what Deanna Kuhn discovered was that only a minority of her subjects possessed, by her standards, the skill of reasoned argument. Everyone had opinions and offered what they conceived of as evidence, but much of it was what she called pseudo-evidence. The difference between those who succeeded and those who failed, she says, comes down to two key abilities.
4: The poorly performing subjects didn't conceive of um, that it could be otherwise. They didn't conceive of alternatives to their own theories and could not conceive of evidence that would disconfirm them. So in a word, they simply told a story, a narrative of this is the way it happens, and with, with no conception that it could be otherwise. And most telling there were the answers to the probing questions that we asked them. Um, suppose someone disagreed with you and had a different point of view, what might they say is the cause? And uh, a a typical answer there would be, well, I don't know, or I I think most people would agree that this is the cause. And then uh, what would someone say to show that you were wrong? We would get answers, well, either I'm not wrong, period. They couldn't say anything, or as one of our subjects rather plaintively put it, if I knew the evidence to show that I'm wrong, I wouldn't say what I'm saying.
1: The interesting finding here, I think, is that one can't be right until one has first conceived the possibility of being wrong. People can evaluate the truth of theories, Deanna Kuhn writes, only by envisioning them not to be true. Ability to generate alternative theories, in other words, is the first vital step in recognizing that one has a theory and this recognition, in turn, is the key to seeing what will count as evidence for or against it. In her study, Deanna Kuhn found that only 40% of her subjects had this ability to generate genuine evidence. This proportion was constant throughout her sample, with one exception.
4: Education was the one subject factor that did make a difference with the educated group. Uh, showing better performance. Age group made no difference. They were roughly equivalent across our age groups and across sex. So some of those stereotypes of uh, sex-related reasoning skill received no support. And the other interesting result I uh, should mention since I described the experts is that... um, there was no advantage of uh, domain expertise that the school teachers reasoned no better or worse about the school they had a lot more knowledge a lot more content that they could refer to but the quality of reasoning was no better for the the crime topic and the school topic which was an interesting result because all of this work you see is premised on the idea that um, uh, that we're really able to separate the strategies the skills from the content of what's being reasoned about
1: do you believe that education was the main difference because through formal education people learn to reason or that education yeah. was a marker for class or some right. other
4: well that's exactly the question that you need to be asking and remember I mentioned that the adolescent group uh, the education differences were only prospective and yet we get the same uh, difference in reasoning skill at the adolescent level before they've had the differential education but of course what's that what that is telling us is that education makes a difference at a very broad general level in one sense it's heartening that that we find that education makes a difference. In the other sen- another sense, it isn't because also recall I mentioned that there were no differences between the age groups. So that means that there were, it, it, during exactly those years when we might most expect and hope for development in reasoning skill from the early high school years, our adolescents were ninth graders, to the early twenties, which the age of our young adult group, uh, we see no overall improvement
1: it was your supposition that seeing that you might be wrong is the key thing in your view
4: two things that there are is an alternative theory to see one's own theory in a framework of alternatives and to recognize the possibility just of evidence that could disconfirm it and both of those things i would Put together under the rubric of being able to distance oneself enough from one's own thinking to one's own thought, treat it as an object of cognition to a sufficient extent to recognize that it could be wrong. So to evaluate it as an object of cognition, and that means, in effect, thinking about one's own thought or what we call meta cognition, being reflective about one's own thought, or another way of putting this, is to think about one's theories rather than simply with them. Everybody thinks with their theories in the sense of using those theories as organizing devices for understanding the world, but most people do so at an implicit level that they're not conscious of, and what the education process needs to do is to make that, that process reflective and conscious of thinking about your theories, and to do that, you... If one does that, you need to recognize that they're recognize them in a framework of alternatives, and recognize uh, that they could that they could be wrong.
1: And how do you suppose that the ability to think about thinking, to have develops? this level, yes, how, how does it develop? How does
4: it develop uh, through exercise? We think, and that that schools don't offer a lot of opportunities for this to happen, even schools that kind of give lip service to dialogue and discussion and so forth that often in those situations one finds that the teacher has a right answer in mind and that the discussion is geared to elicit the right answer that the teacher was looking for and and full well knew herself and uh, very rarely in classrooms do we see discussions of difficult issues for which there are no clear answers like the ones that I asked about
1: Deanna Kuhn has no hesitation in saying that schools ought to foster the skills of argumentative reasoning that they now neglect. Reasoned argument, in her view, is not just one of many possible modes of thought. It's the very heart of thinking, the only way that a society finally has of settling differences, and therefore an indispensable precondition for effective citizenship.
4: Reason is better than... It's opposite the non-reason. Um, and where I look to justify that kind of claim is in this, is in the idea of control, that the value of having well-developed skills in what I call coordinating theory and evidence lies in the concept of um, control that it, ought, that it provides one over one's own thinking, to be able to differentiate what comes from external sources and what comes from, one's own thought. In other words, just rather than just thinking with one's theories implicitly, but not knowing what they are, to be in control of those theories by being able to reflect on them. And I would argue, finally, that these are the fundamental kinds of skills that we need um, to participate in a democratic uh, society.
0: On Ideas Tonight, you've heard the third part of our four-part series on modes of thought by David Cayley. Production assistants for tonight's program, Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. Technical direction, Lorne Tulk. The producer was Alison Moss. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.